I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your co-host. I'm Dean Detlef, your other co-host. All right, folks, we got some good reviews last week about our fireside chat style here. So we're going to give it another shot. This time, though, we're going to talk about something different. Maybe more of a bummer. I mean, I don't know. Um, it seems hard to talk about anything that is not this new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, it is grim and important and tough all at the same time. And I don't know how we could do a podcast about something else, I guess. It's just occupying all of my brain space. And maybe that's just uh, a, a byproduct of being very online. But it seems like rather than forcing a different conversation right now, we should probably just like talk through the current the current situation about this IPCC report, what it might mean for politics, um, how we might understand it better. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, uh, it's um, at least taking up a lot of my brain space and it seems like it's worth talking about. Yeah, the world is on fire side chat, I guess, is uh, what we're doing here. Um, we've been reading a few things. Uh, Matt's been cobbling together all kinds of good resources, good resources about bad news, I guess. Uh, I have not been. So, Matt, I'm just going to treat you as my my local um, climate scientist for now. I've been watching a lot of Futurama, yeah. so I can bring some of that energy, maybe, just doing a big rewatch. Please do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's rough. Climate change is rough. We have talked about things like eco-socialism and uh, eco-theology on this podcast a handful of times. But I think, you know, things are getting worse and the forecasts are worse and worse. And it's always important to kind of think through what, if anything, we can even do, given all that uh, bad news on the horizon. Yep. Um, so <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about this week. It's going to be such a bummer. Oh, my God. I don't know why. I don't know what I'm trying to even what I'm trying to do here. It's just like there's no way around kind of like uh, dealing with how I think bad it might be. Um, OK, so folks, dear listeners, you know, this podcast, it's about Christianity and the left, and we are certainly not experts on that. <laughs> um, we don't know anything about theology, but we kind of wing it every time and it just turns out OK. Um, and just like that, we're also not experts on climate science. So um, just like when it comes to theology, we're going to do our best. Uh, we're going to uh, not posture ourselves like we're know-it-alls because, like I've said, we're not. Uh, so instead, what I did was kind of just did a roundup of a few of the better articles that might explain the IPCC report. And then we'll just do our best to, you know, I don't know, 
give our own take on the situation and um, see what comes of it, I guess. I, I Just like last time, uh, just like last week's episode, I don't really know how I feel about it, so maybe by the end I will figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think it is better to think of this episode as an invitation to think alongside of us rather than us telling you about something in particular because I think that's probably just the best way to think about this. Like, like I said, we're not experts. We're just people that know a little bit about Marxism. Um, <laughs> we're going to give our best read in the situation. Um, so let's just start at the very, at the very top, at the very beginning, um, here, uh, uh, Dean, I'm going to give you and all the listeners out there, uh, what I think is actually a pretty good, uh, summary that explains the gravity of the situation. Uh, this is, uh, from an article that was written in the Atlantic. Uh, it's, uh, from an article called it's grim. The latest mm. UN report is clear. Climate change is here. It's a crisis and it's caused by fossil fuels. <laughs> yeah, it's by someone named Robinson Meyer. I don't know anything about them. I'm being a bad media media critic right now, but that's okay. Anyways, um, Meyer writes this. A new United Nations-led report from hundreds of climate scientists around the world makes it clear. The human-driven climate crisis is now well underway. Earth is likely hotter now than it has been at any moment since the beginning of the last ice age, 125,000 years ago. And the world has warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius or nearly 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Since the Industrial Revolution began, an unprecedented and rapid change with no parallel in the common era. The recent spat of horrific heat waves, fire fueling droughts, and flood-inducing storms that have imperiled the inhabited world are not only typical of global warming, but directly caused by it. Climate change has arrived, in other words, and it will keep getting worse until humanity reduces its greenhouse gas pollution to zero, which can be accomplished only by dethroning oil, coal, and gas as the central energy sources powering the global economy. Okay, there's a few times I was reading that where I did have to stop myself from laughing because of how monumental of a task that sounds. <laughs> yeah. Um, we can do it. We can. We can. We can definitely get to 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 a carbon zero sort of situation. But we only have to do something like dethrone oil, gas, Easy. and coal as the central energy. So yeah, exactly. I could do it in my sleep. Um, but for some people, that seems difficult. I, if if that were up to me, I would just I would just do that. <laughs> um, Okay, Dean. So that's the situation. There's a new report. It's giving us some bad news. The world's already gotten hotter, and it's going to get hotter unless we do <laughs> the impossible and kill God. Um, <laughs> so what do you think? You know, uh, I've read my Nietzsche. People have done it before. Um, we can do it again. We can kill God again. And uh, this time, we won't feel so bad about it. Uh, I think, you know, it's hard to read that stuff. It's always hard. I think, I don't know if this is a healthy response, but somewhere along my weird life, I've picked up some coping mechanism that makes me feel sort of like my powerlessness uh, is kind of like empowering in a weird way of <laughs> just being like, yeah, well, I don't know. I guess I can't do that. So uh, what can I do? And I don't think that's always a very healthy impulse. Sometimes you have to kind of like, sit in the uh, completely inert uh, morning phase of it. And I kind of brush over that sometimes. So I'm going to try to resist that temptation here. But I do think it's worth kind of signaling that initial reaction, because I guess for me, the hardest thing is actually internalizing the gravity of climate change, really like yeah. uh, picking up on what's coming down the pipe, right? Like what's uh, actually around the corner. It's a lot easier for me to kind of deflect that. Um, or, or sort of over-intellectualize it and be like, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, a fact about the world that I know, but it's not really, like, 
a life that I'm living in an active way, uh, kind of in the, mm-hmm. you know, like as though you were living in the time of the biblical prophets, right? Like Isaiah is telling you, listen, this is all going to go to shit. And you're like, yeah, probably, but I don't know. I got to go to work. Right. So <laughs> I think, uh, there is a lot of resources in, in the Christian tradition to kind of think about this and, and even more perhaps in the Marxist tradition, I'd say, although not without its own problems when it comes to ecology, but all that to say, Certainly. uh, my initial response to this is always like, wow, how can I actually take a minute to like figure out what's what I'm really being told in this moment? Yeah, I agree. I think that there is a I mean, the the news that you're being given in this given moment is an existential crisis, not only for you, but for everybody. And I think like actually understanding that is quite difficult. Um, Man, I think. OK, this is my when I when I was first reading this IPCC report uh, on Monday, um, I, I could not help but think of like every ridiculous sci fi show I've ever watched mm. where they um, come up against some kind of like insurmountable scientific force in the world. You know, there's like an asteroid's going to hit the hit the world and blow it up, um, you know, some kind of terrible virus is happening there's a big volcano a giant shark is eating everybody all of these mm-hmm. things right and through the sheer will of like human the human spirit and also science they were able to overcome these things by like <laughs> right. basically magic right. and i think like the thing sorry really just struck- to interrupt you magic and also yeah. bruce willis uh doing his big drill on the asteroid <laughs> that's right um exactly and i guess like to me what strikes me is that like i think that those like particular types of like science fiction narratives, at least the ones I've already named it, you know, what's appealing about them is that in the end, like humans do beat nature and like, isn't that cool and like great. But I think like the more profound point is that we probably won't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, when you kind of think about climate change in the terms given to you, it is a message about our own um, human frailty (laughs) and like, uh, our inability to really change things that we've caused without um, a massive effort. It's just like, uh, I, I, man, I hate, I hate to bring him up, but it is our podcast. So I guess I can do whatever I want. Um, it does make me think of Paul Virilio though, to no end, right? Like um, catastrophe. He is a good thinker of it. Um, and this is like human finitude par excellence for sure. Um, we've made this awful problem (laughs) and now we can't get ourselves out of it. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what you have to sit with is that like, this is a situation that we've created and without, without insurmountable, uh, without some kind of like, you know, amazing, um, political (laughs) solution, nothing is probably really going to change. Um, and on the one hand, like that is very bad, but it's also just kind of like, that's what humans are kind of all about is, uh, you know, we screw things up sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's wild because I think especially living in a capitalist society, all of that sort of doom is increased a thousand fold just because you, you don't have any kind of hand on, on the ship, you know, like there's no way to steer, mm-hmm. steer anything. So you're just kind of along for the ride and like the captain's insane and so on and so forth, I guess. I don't know. This metaphor is kind of getting out of hand, but I guess the the idea is that, you know, there's no way to even feel like you have any participatory power 
that could totally. change anything. Even if you are out there in the streets every single day, you know, like people are, um, it's still uh, the the needle's just not going to budge when you have somebody like even Joe Biden in the in the White House, right? And yeah, it's wild too. I think one thing that is fascinating about climate change is it is sort of returning us in a new way to Marxist ideas about things that I think the left has sometimes been reticent to take up in places like the U S especially, um, you know, just cause the U S left has a, a long tradition of being very suspicious of power and sort of a tradition of Republicanism, I guess, at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and I do think that there's something kind of salutary about that as a move on the left to sort of say, well, a massive crisis will actually require a massive solution. And you can't really have a massive solution unless you have a particular class, you know, holding the reins of power, controlling things like states and so on. Um, I think that's changing the conversation around other very big geopolitical actors like China, as complicated as they are. You know, it's like it does make a kind of qualitative difference to say well i don't know maybe there's a party that could sort of guide the ship in some direction and and maybe not you know and and what does that mean but the mm-hmm. craziest thing is when you're in a capitalist society all these sort of uh possibilities or ideas about you know can we do war communism but for the planet and so on all those ideas are like really cool books uh but extremely depressing uh fictions that you know don't have any bearing on material life yeah, that's true. Um, all right, let me let me heap one more uh, very big bummer on top of it all, and then we can talk about um, more about war communism before the planet. That <laughs> is a fun idea, but a, but a difficult reality. Um, all right, this is from that same Atlantic article that I think characterizes the situation a little bit more direly, in a more dire terms. Um, okay. So in the first part, if you'll recall, it's like uh, the author's explaining that the world's already warmed uh, uh, about two degrees Fahrenheit. If you live in the United States, if you live somewhere else, it's 1.1 degrees Celsius. Um, Okay, so the world's already warmed. So the question kind of coming in the future is like, will we do something to make that warming stop? Um, And it's really important because if we do nothing, um, it won't stop. Uh, the IPCC report, as we'll talk about in maybe a little bit, has these like uh, five different possible scenarios of different futures that could play out depending on um, the ways, uh, I mean, people choose to mitigate the, um, I mean, the use of fossil fuels, basically. Anyways, um, so this, uh, we have this like two degree number, um, but it's actually a little bit more dire than just that two degrees. So this is a, a bit more from that Atlantic article. So it says this, the IPCC now warrants that the world is likely to exceed the 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2040, even if humanity cuts carbon pollution as rapidly as is plausible. In fact, the agency estimates that enough greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere today to raise the planet's temperature by 1.5 degrees Celsius, only the cooling effects of smog and other forms of conventional air pollution are keeping temperatures depressed. Okay. So I only say that because like, um, it's not like if we, it, it's not as if we stop using fossil fuels right now, <laughs> if we did it right now, that would mean the world will stop warming because it's not the case. The The point is that it's already warmed a bit and um, and we're basically like guaranteed another 1.5 degrees Celsius um, or, you know, a, a bit more Fahrenheit. So um, it's like the situation is already dire moving forward. Um, and even if it were fixed immediately, 
in some kind of like <laughs> amazing scientific uh, situation. Like, um, I don't know if, if Bruce Willis was able to <laughs> use his big drill to solve climate change. Uh, even if he did, it wouldn't really, uh, it wouldn't at least stop the additional 1.5 degrees that like we're kind of already in store for, but it would stop other, other climate, uh, other warming in the future. Okay. So all that to say, <laughs> like, whether or not, I, I mean, like, you can't just like, I, I guess the reason that that fact is important to me is that there's no magical solution out of this. Like, mm-hmm. warming is happening kind of like whether you want it to or not, or like whether you, even if you, even if you believe Joe Biden um, that has like the answer to this, even if you believe that, like, it doesn't matter because like the world will still get hotter, even if you think that Joe Biden really has the answer, if like he can actually fix things. It doesn't really matter. Things are still going to get worse. And I guess like that part is still important that uh, that that nobody, no politician has like an easy like just like an easy way to fix things. And uh, I think that, oh, oh, my God, I don't know. It's just such a it's such a, thing, a hard thing to deal with because there are so many people who are trying to be very optimistic about this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like we can still fight this like we can we can still get together and like win and do something good. And like, sh- sure. I mean, like optimism certainly has its place and sometimes it's not optimism sometimes it's like just being like realistic like people can actually overcome problems that's true but like i i guess the point is that like there's a certain amount of damage that is done that we will experience and there's nothing that we can do about that part yeah yeah right um i don't know why this just came to me but i think it was the last time we had lydia on the podcast she was saying something about how one of her children is really uh moved by climate change and um, really changing a lot of their habits and also thinking really hard about it. And, and, you know, it must be such a challenge to kind of parent in that environment. Uh, if your kid is really passionate about that issue already. And I think that is really difficult. It's a completely unfair burden that we've put on not just, you know, ourselves, but future human beings, whether they're ours or somebody else's, uh, the one sort of optimism of the will thing, I guess, is that there are at least like, people like Lydia out there who are trying to create some space for like other kinds of subjectivity in the world, you know, like other kinds of dispositions that don't shy away from understanding that the crisis is very bad actually. Um, So not just telling your kid to like, I don't know, put on another episode of Paw Patrol because you know, it's like it's their childhood, but telling your kid to kind of lean into that feeling of being like, yeah, this is quite sad and we do need to think through how to live it together. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I'm not giving any parenting advice out here for sure. A thousand percent, but uh, (laughs) just that kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of courage to actually face up to that issue and not uh, shy away from it, I guess, ironically, you know, to embrace the the tragedy of it is also, um, I guess the only real hope is to be able to, to kind of do that in an honest way. Yeah. I mean, it's true. Um, I mean, speaking as a parent, it is far easier to just, like, ignore the situation and, like, you know, your kid could just watch another episode of Paw Patrol. I mean, not that show for sure, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, it would be easier to just ignore it because it seems like that's kind of the strategy of most people, Um, whether (laughs) they're just, like, regular people or, like, in the government or whatever, (laughs) the strategy is to ignore it. But yeah, I mean, you're right to at least confront the problem is is something it's uh, it's the, it's the, it's the required step to do something else. That's for sure. Like, um, so that's all true. I guess what the what the next step is, is like yeah. a different story altogether. You know, I was like um, <laughs> today on Twitter, I was like really tweeting through it, I think. And I made a handful of dumb tweets about like um, 
uh, you know, like you as an individual, you can change climate change if you just like do a few easy things like uh, hold oil <laughs> companies, uh, you know, <laughs> accountable and uh, stop paying them so much and et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that individuals can't do. But the joke that I was making was that you could. Anyway, some of the responses that people gave me were very interesting. Like um, someone was like, OK, jokes aside, but like we should do direct action against oil companies. And it's like, OK, yeah, I mean, I guess you should. And then yeah. what, though? Um, unless like, I don't know, an oil company doesn't care about your direct action unless, you know, you're actually stopping them from gaining profits or whatever, or drilling or Which something. Which people do, to be fair, but, um, yeah. Absolutely, totally. They totally do. That's true. Um, water protectors and so on, like, these people are, I think, heroic, uh, braver than the troops. I'm not afraid to admit it. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, like, unless there's, uh, a bigger yeah. plan for society where like we can figure out how to shift into a different a different way of living our lives it's like direct action is only a piece of mm -hmm. that puzzle i suppose yeah i think that's right you know i always think of uh jessica resnick and uh ruby montoya the um catholic workers from iowa who uh, uh sabotaged that pipeline a little while back i think um they've been in the news again recently for uh different things related to the legal process around their case. But yeah, so they, they sabotaged this oil pipeline and then they uh, fled for a little while and um, eventually they turned themselves in and, you know, they cited their, their faith as kind of the motivation for that action. And, you know, I, like a thousand times I uh, would, would defend those people to say, this is great. You know, what a, what an incredible reflection of, uh, of their conscience and their Christian uh, commitment in the world and so on. At the same time, I think uh, the hardest thing is creating like organizational pathways where average folks who are not Catholic workers can kind of find their way into building a different society. Uh, I, I, you know, people should be doing direct action. Sure. Like that's very good and so on. But uh, at the end of the day, like, a thousand direct actions are probably not going to pile up so heavily that like our entire economy decides to suddenly change, you know, in an ironic way, it's kind of like a, a yeah. really intense version of the like voting with your dollar argument, <laughs> you know, like if we uh, yeah. just kind of, I don't know, get enough people upset, uh, eventually the companies will have no choice, but to sort of reinvest their capital in green technologies that we don't sabotage or something. And I just think, I don't know, you know, at the end of the day, you have to ask the question about how do you get power in a society uh, that you can exercise, you know, not just defend yourself against or not just react against, but uh, power that you can really um, use in a significant way. And I think Christians and people on the left have a hard time kind of having a, you know, understandably for, for good, good moral <laughs> intuition uh, reasons. They have a hard time thinking about power in a positive way, but I think it's really important to find a way to do mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I agree with what you said. I mean, obviously, the people who like the water protectors, um, the Catholic workers or whoever, right, the, the indigenous people who are out there like sabotaging pipelines or protesting or whatever, um, mm -hmm. obviously a good like nothing wrong with doing that and important work for sure. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, doing direct action does not redesign the streets of my city so that like people can ride their bikes down them or something uh, or like, you know, it doesn't like, it doesn't invest a lot of money and uh, time into building a transit system in, in the larger Metro area where people can actually like use it and get to work. It doesn't, it's not like it doesn't build power in a way that actually, I think um, 
does does that like that other type of work that yeah. needs to be done as well and you're exactly right i think people on the left um and christians specifically i, I mean my inner christian anarchist hates the idea of power and having it like you shouldn't right but um you need mm -hmm. it desperately <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna do something like that like i don't know i mean redesigning your city so that you have a bike lane or like a bigger bike lane or like um like rapid mass transit it seems kind of like some boring stuff but um that is the type of power that you need if you do want to think about climate change and how you might uh i don't know reduce carbon output even a little bit uh you have to think of those like registers of ideas but yeah uh, yeah I, I think um well one idea that i think we kind of keep coming back to is okay well you need power to change the world but also you need to know like what to do with that mm -hmm. power right um and uh, some people on the left, okay, some people on the left are afraid of power. We've talked about that already. But some people on the left um, have a lot to say about, like, um, the future and how we imagine it and, like, how we imagine what we might do with that power. Uh, all kinds of people on the left have a lot to say about this, um, for better <laughs> or for worse, I think. <laughs> like, uh, for example, Frederick Jameson is really famous for that thing uh, that he says, <laughs> that Slava Zizek <laughs> quotes, I think, yeah. more than he probably ever did. <laughs> Where he says that, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism, um, that kind of thing, right? It's uh it's a that's a statement about the future and about like what can we imagine is actually possible. Um and it's like a I, I mean like an overwrought quote that people post on their Twitter too often, I suppose, but it's like true, right? You can think of the world ending before you can think of an alternative to the destructive capacities of capitalism. That's true, sure. Um, and that's a problem also, right? Um uh, an another popular slogan, I think, in that vein um, about the future and about power and imagining something different uh, comes from the Zapatistas. Um, you know, another world is possible. We, we talk about it all the time. I think we've said it a handful of times on this podcast. Um, and I think that these ideas are really important places to start interrogating. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, like what what you would do if you had political power to change climate change and like what you would do if you could change what the future would be like, I think these are probably the places to start. Um, you know, like before you just like figure it all out, <laughs> before you come up with a five-year plan, you have to think about your own political imagination and the ways that like, you know, maybe you have certain blocks that you might need to ease or something. So maybe that's where we can pivot the conversation, Dean. Um, we should talk about power and then what to do <laughs> with it in the future. How, how can we imagine a better future? Oh boy. Uh, yeah. Asking the simple questions on this podcast. I think, uh, it's hard to talk about things like the imagination if you're a Marxist because uh, people get themselves hung up on the kind of idealism materialism problem. And I'm here to tell you that is a, a boring way to carve up the world. <laughs> it's not that simple. Um, you know, uh, the what I mean by that is some people will say, well, you shouldn't get lost in imagining the future because uh, that imagination is not what's going to drive you to change. Uh, the real thing we have to do is kind of change the material conditions and then the, the kind of vision of the future that we need will emerge, you know, through that process. Um, I think most people are not that naive on the left, but you do run into a handful of them <laughs> in rallies around the Internet. People with too much time in their hands, I guess. Sure. Um, I think uh, it's really important to cultivate some kind of imagination that is not um, uh, not disconnected from our reality but does kind of point us towards some other future um 
you know, I think it's really easy for Christians to actually enter the conversation at this stage, even though it's maybe hard to like do it in the right way, or at least I found it very difficult <laughs> sort of reflecting on my own life to do it in the right way. Uh, you know, Christians are really good at talking about things like eschatology, the end times, the future. Uh, we kind of have these like vague ideas about the future. Like, uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb in the Christian vision of the future. The the boots that are used for war will be, you know, thrown in the fire and so on and so forth. Um, the streets are paved with gold because that's like a great joke about how wealth is silly and all that kind of stuff. I think that's really important. Um but, uh, you know, you can kind of get lost in the vagueness of it. I think what is really important about the left is it offers Christians a, a way to kind of maybe start building some bridges between that vague vision of the future and how to get there um, and how to put some sort of flesh mm -hmm. on on those uh, those bones or something, uh, you know, like just thinking through what would it mean to actually live in a society where uh, you don't have to put on boots to go to war? You know, what would you have to do to achieve such a society? Um, you know, you would need a society that doesn't have uh, massive uh, excuses for internal conflict, like in a class divided society or a, or a society that's riven with racial and gender um, politics and so on. Right. Uh, all these kinds of things have to go away if you want to get to that kind of imaginative future. So I guess what I'm trying to do here is sort of insert Christianity into this uh, pivot, which is to say Christians actually, you know, are good at kind of using our imaginations. And that can be kind of a boon to the left, uh, at least insofar as it maybe allows us to uh, walk around the world in a different sort of way. Um, as long as we're able to ground that kind of imaginative impulse in, uh, you know, some real material analysis. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. I mean, you're not inserting Christianity in the place where it's not already <laughs> <laughs> deeply entrenched. Um, yeah, I mean, all kinds of prophetic literature, um, revelation. I mean, uh, even in the, <laughs> it also is there in a lot of bad ways, too, I guess. Um, Christians have also imagined a very bad future, too. I mean, speaking of like a political imagination, um, I don't know. It doesn't get any worse than thinking that like. Uh, left behind is real yeah, or yeah, something, right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Nikolai Carpathia is gonna he's gonna <laughs> rise to power. So like, who cares about this global warming stuff? Um, but you're right. I mean, I think that broadly speaking, the Christian tradition does have some tools that lends itself to thinking of a future that like is maybe better. Uh, but the question at hand is like, well, how do you get there? Like, what do you do? Um, you know, do you have the political analysis to make any of those things like actually happen, or you, do you have to actually wait for like some kind of uh, divine intervention and um i gotta tell you the divine, the divine intervention doesn't seem like it's coming um <laughs> <laughs> it seems like we might it might be up to us um well i i think that uh okay so marxism gives us some tools to think about like well like what how could you change the material conditions that would uh you know alter reality completely for people right um you know you put a different class in charge uh you um you know, you create a different type of culture of democracy and participation. These things, they fundamentally change society. Christianity has a way of doing that as well. Um, uh, you know, more idealistic and sometimes very problematic, but just the same <laughs> does it. Uh, but I think that what is what is pretty wild about the IPCC report is that it's also uh, suggested some possible futures that we have to kind of start factoring into the way that we mm -hmm. also imagine our future. Um, you know, the, the, you have to kind of graft this story into, to the one that 
uh, you know, the alternate uh, stories that we're also telling ourselves about what's politically possible or what you might do uh, in the future. And uh, I think that it might be worth considering some of those stories as well. So um, we don't have to go like into these very expansively, but there are five different stories that come from the IPCC report. And um, two of them, okay, again, we don't need to talk about like how much CO2 and like when, um, but I can just say this, I guess, that um, there's like two scenarios that are like, okay, and livable. <laughs> and then there are three that are like, <laughs> not really that great. Um, <laughs> that's putting it very lightly. So the very first one is the most optimistic scenario where uh, it, it describes a world where global CO2 are cut to net zero around 2050. And most everyone has switched to sustainable practices. <laughs> all, all societies have switched to sustainable practices. Um, yeah, we did it. It's great. Uh, okay. Actually, okay. I'll, I'm going to take all that back. I want to actually read this one because it, it is very interesting to think about. The, IPC, the IPCC's most optimistic scenario describes a world where uh, global CO2 emissions are cut to net zero around 2050. Societies switch to more sustainable practices, which focus shifting from economic growth to overall well-being. Investments in education and health go up. Inequality falls. Extreme weather is more common, but the world has dodged the worst impacts of climate change. Okay. Um, so that's like the best, the best scenario. The second best is where like, um, I don't know, it gets hotter. <laughs> the third one is like sort of middle of the road where uh, you don't, uh, society doesn't reach a net zero carbon emission by 2100 and uh, the temperature rises 2.7 centigrade in the century and then uh the last two are like the temperature rises by three degrees centigrade and then four and the last two are like you can't live this way <laughs> you know like kind of, uh it goes so far as to say in the third one in the third scenario countries become more competitive with one another shifting toward national security and sharing their own food supplies by the end of the century the average temperature is risen to 3.6 centigrade and these descriptions from the IPCC report are so fascinating to me because they are describing possible futures. Like if you do or do not deal with, uh, you know, carbon emissions in a certain way, but they're also completely devoid of any kind of political, <laughs> political narrative to any of these. Like, I don't know. Um, how would you cut to net zero carbon emissions by 2050? And then like, how would you switch your society from focusing on economic growth to overall well-being? <laughs> like, what does that possibly mean apart from politics? Just these like wild stories that I think are just as idealistic yeah, yeah, as right, like Jesus right. coming again. <laughs> um, but I, I guess I was, I was like reading through some of these and just thinking about how like, I, I don't know, these these stories, I mean, one way or the other, I mean, as vague as they are and idealistic as they are, have to be integrated into the way that we're thinking about political power and like possible futures like honestly um i mean as idealistic it is as it is i want the optimistic scenario where we cut all carbon emission to a net zero by 2050 mm -hmm. that sounds like the best option <laughs> to me that's the one i want personally but there's like no possible way to get there uh without actually uh having political power like a pretty heavy-handed political power too right like joe biden's not gonna stop fracking now just because he read a scary report um you know unless uh you know, you got 30 years until 2050 or whatever. Nothing's going to change unless uh, the entire logic of capitalism is yeah, flipped on its head. Um, it's frustrating. You know, I, I think I tweeted this the other day. This is, I guess, a throwaway. I'm annoyed at the Wibs comment, but I'll make it. Uh, you know, the Democrats really went to town in the last election talking about uh, believing in science and the Republicans didn't believe in science. And yeah. when Biden came on the scene, he was really going to 
be the science president, you know, making sure that we did everything right about COVID. First of all, that has proven to be completely false <laughs> with respect to the pandemic. Not very good at listening to science on that score uh, among the Democrats either. But I think when it comes to climate change, that rhetoric is even more important. You know, science, believing science is not as straightforward as it seems. I think anybody who reads a book about the philosophy of science will be able to tell you that. But even more so than that, you know, the fact is, like, the scientific community, you know, it doesn't always have consensuses around everything, but it has like a pretty good consensus around climate change, it being bad and happening. And it also does not seem to me to suggest that the kinds of policies that someone like Joe Biden puts forward are enough to to cut it. And I think it's important that people start saying that, too, <laughs> that at the end of the day, the Democrats are a climate change denying political party. They do not believe the reality that we know from science <laughs> and other things when it comes to climate change. And I think it's important to make those kinds of demands that, like, we do need a governing strategy that does believe in climate change. And there is not a political party uh, with power in the United States that has a, a platform and a vision for that. I mean, people need to make them. I don't, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't seem to me like the DSA is prepared to do that now, and the disparate number of communist parties in the U.S. Uh, can't seem to, you know, get things together either, which is not a not a knock from a position of purity. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm also in a, you know, uh, involved in all kinds of left-wing projects that haven't gotten off the ground either quite yet, uh, you know, knock on wood, I guess. But I think... It's important to kind of uh, keep refusing at every turn this kind of rhetoric that you get among liberals that says, finally, we have, you know, the adult in the White House or the person who's uh, reading the reports and so on. Because, uh, 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 like you said, Matt, a scary report is not going to shock Biden into overturning the economy of the United States. And uh, we really need to be sort of asking that hard question. Yeah, I think so. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I'm appreciative of this report in general because it does, I mean, it forced me to think about these questions in a way that maybe I haven't taken seriously in the past or, you know, or, you know, I intellectualize them. <laughs> like, like we said at the beginning of the show, like, I know climate change exists. I know it's going to be very bad, but like, whatever, what can I do? But these kind of things put in a different sort of light and that's helpful. Um, something that I keep seeing around this particular report that I think kind of goes along with what you're saying is um, a bunch of different news outlets, uh, people in within the IPCC in, in general, they keep framing it as like, it's a, it's a wake up call. It's an alarm bell. This is code red. And I am <laughs> yeah. just so irritated by this particular rhetoric. Not because, I mean, like it's true. It, it is all of those things, I suppose. Right. If you, if you're a person who is ready to receive this information, it is those things like me. Um, <laughs> I'm someone who was not thinking about it very critically. And I read this and now I'm thinking about it a little bit differently. And like, isn't that good? I'm, <laughs> I'm such a, a um, I'm a citizen, so well abreast of things in the world, but like, it, it's not fundamentally to to I mean to Joe Biden to anybody in, involved in in U.S. politics. I mean, people have known these things for a long time. Climate scientists have known these things for a long time, and like, it in 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 some ways, it, it, I guess it is a wake up call. But to no one to no one everyone keeps snoozing it man no one cares i i guess it's like it's frustrating because there's like a forced optimism that like people will kind of pick up this news and do something with it and maybe i'm being overly pessimistic but like the u.s is the largest contributor to climate change like that's true um and a scary report like i said is it going to get in the way of the profits of a bunch of oil executives it's not going to change joe biden's mind 
and like feigning some type of optimism where like now we've woken up now we're going to get to this it's just like not going to get us anywhere either and i i guess like i don't know man like we have to like escape the orbit of like thinking about climate change or politics in general as sort of like kind of individual pursuit because it is not (laughs) at all there's nothing any person can do about this except every person and uh yeah i mean the only way forward is a mass movement to actually like deal with these political situations that we're finding ourselves in um so maybe we could quickly give um we can give our marks a socialist take about like what's going on um with uh climate catastrophe and uh and and what what one might do if they had power yeah i mean you know that is the million dollar question but i think it's one that marxism has a lot of things to say uh about you know we i mentioned earlier marxism doesn't have the best record either when it comes to ecology of course lots of examples uh in the soviet union of uh, ecologically destructive um habits and uh the same can be said of china and probably lots of other communist countries um at the end of the day though i do think that capitalism is uniquely positioned in such a way that the logic of capital first of all is I think a a pretty significant reason why many of these communist countries also have to sort of rapidly industrialize in ways that are not sustainable. Um, You know, if they didn't have to compete with capitalist countries, they would not have to do that. Um, And secondly, though, capitalism itself is a logic that's always going to outstrip the ecology, no matter what Uh, there's just, you know, it is, it is a system of infinite financial growth on a planet of totally finite uh, resources. And I think what's really significant to me is Marxism does offer a way of kind of pulling these things together, both ecology and economy. You know, uh, there's a lot of work being done lately on eco-socialism and Marxism. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But I do think that at its most sort of basic uh, level, I mean, maybe this is why I just feel so compelled to kind of be in, in a Leninist tradition of thinking about these things, because you do need to answer the question of how do you even get power and, and what would you do with it when you got it? Um, you know, some a weird anecdote, I guess. Uh, one time I was here in Toronto and I heard Slava Zizek give a talk and it, it was a wild talk. He's my guest. And Zizek, I don't know, he's a weird guy. I, I don't like a lot of things he says. One thing he did say, though, that was pretty good and stuck with me was in a Q&A portion. There was somebody who asked the question, um, do you think, Slava Zizek, that there is any possibility for, like, an anarchist commune to work in our society? Like, a very undergraduate question about the left. And uh, yeah. Zizek uh, asked, you know, what examples do you have of, like, some good anarchist collectives? And they gave, I don't know, a few of them. And Zizek was like, all right, you know, those are all really interesting kind of experiments in the world and so on and so forth. But he said, when it comes to climate change, there are going to be like massive migrations from coastal regions of human beings, like thousands, millions of humans who have to go somewhere else. And like, what are we going to do? (laughs) Like who's going to decide where those people go and what happens to them when they end up in a different place? And like, what are they going to find when they get to a region that is habitable? You know, like who's going to be allowed to move and who's going to be forced to stay and die? Like these are real questions that climate change is going to pose. And he said at the end of the day, anarchism does not have a way of answering this level, uh, this kind of macro scale of a question. And Leninism does, which is to say you have to find a way to take the state. I mean, however you do it, you know, there's lots of complicated conversations about that. You, you know, you probably can't do it the way that they did it in, in Tsarist Russia, obviously. 
but like, you know, at the end of the day, these are big questions about big problems. And uh, Marxism offers, and Leninism in particular, I think, offers a, a kind of historical tradition that is trying to figure out uh, how to think at that level about big problems. Yeah, it's true. I mean, um, you, know, you say the word Leninism, people are going to immediately think of, I don't know, the Bolsheviks and the Bolsheviks only. But like, um, you know, you find the fingerprints of Leninism all over things like, um, you know, 21st century socialism in Venezuela or like the agroecology stuff of uh, Cuba. You know, I, I guess I'm, I just want to make sure that people realize that when we say Leninism, we're th- meaning something pretty expansive yeah, yeah. and not like a weird sect or For something. Sure, yeah. um, <laughs> still want to give get anyone like the wrong idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. It's a very, very important, gigantic aspect. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, so I think that's true though. I mean, and in this one instance, in this one instance only, I'll say that Zizek is right and that's fine. <laughs> Just kidding. He's probably right about other things too, yeah. but I don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good example, a really good explanation of like exactly why the question of power is so important because like, I mean, it's it's not about like like having power and like reigning over people, but it's about how do you actually solve problems um, when so many people's lives are at stake, and you're trying to like mm-hmm. do something, right? It's like it's a it's a real wild question, and it's not like capitalism has an answer to that, right? Like the capitalist solution is like I don't know, go to work and like shut up, like that's it. There's no there's no capitalist solution to climate change, um, and in fact, there can't be. Um, because just like you said a minute ago, Dean, like capitalism has a logic inherent to it that is completely, um, opposed, I think to actually like, I mean, to to a capitalist, it makes no sense to rein in, (laughs) to rein in fossil fuel industries, right? It makes no sense to overturn an economy based on, um, exponential growth for one that is focused on well-being. That makes no sense to a capitalist. In fact, it cannot, um, I think there's actually, uh, I, I mean, okay, like we, we talked about Slavish Zizek, so I have to talk about somebody who I actually like for a second. Um, uh, one one Marxist who I think has a really interesting way and like helpful explanation of this particular situation is John Bellamy Foster, who is one of the editors of the Monthly Review. Um, Foster JBF uh, is what we call him <laughs> on the podcast, our, our friend JBF. Um, he has a really uh, helpful phrase. He's kind of knitted together based on some of Marx's writings called metabolic rift. And um, he's kind of cobbling together some Marx from different places, some from the early Marx, some from like capital, doesn't matter. Um, But um, I I think it's really helpful because it does explain how uh, completely like contradictory this whole situation would be for capitalism. Um, uh, in uh, in the uh, philosoph- or economic and philosophic manuscripts of 1844, this is like a really obscure Marx reference, but it's a good one. Um, in the section where Marx is talking about a strange labor and about being kind of cut off from your own labor uh, and how that happens within wage labor and capitalism and stuff, um, there's this also this other note too about how um, humans are a part of nature and the, there's sort of like this uh, dialogue between humanity and nature in this kind of interesting way. Um, but just like, uh, but Mark says, just like, you know, um, labor, uh, you know, capitalism cuts humans off from their labor and alienates them. It also cuts them off. Uh, capitalism cuts them off from nature in this really particular way too, and alienates them from nature, which, you know, go taking it like a step further, John Bellamy Foster uses this for this metabolic rift idea where like 
capitalism is going to always outpace what nature can kind of keep up with. I mean, nature is a, a loaded question, a loaded term philosophically, whatever. That's a conversation for another time. But the idea is that like um, capitalism is going to always keep growing and like pushing uh, places like it, it's going to push the limits of not only like the like human finitude, but also planetary finitude. And I think that is like the important part of this where like capitalism is a productive system uh, that requires more and growth and expansion and like stretching out even further into all kinds of different spaces. Right. And uh, you just can't, <laughs> you can't make sense of that. You can't square that, that circle with like the square of, um, of like a society not based on economic growth. You can't square capitalism with a society based on well-being. It just like doesn't work in the end because they're completely opposed ideas. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that is really a key too, is just uh, keeping, keep hammering home, I guess, that these are opposed ideas, right? Like just to return to the Biden thing, Biden in the last couple months has been going on and on about how much he thinks capitalism is very important and he's really into it and so on, while also, you know, talking out of the other side of his mouth about ecology. And I think it's just really significant to say you have to choose. You have to choose one. You can choose capitalism and you can, I guess, uh, burn us all out <laughs> because you're a bad president, or you can choose ecology and uh, not have capitalism uh, because we can't uh, have both of those things at the same time. And I think, you know, Joe Biden's making his choice and it's going to suck for everybody. Uh, it will not move us in a good direction at the end of the day. We will not be better off because Joe Biden was president uh, and kept the rails on, I guess, for capitalism. But I do think that, you know, uh, it makes a difference to kind of say capitalism is an intrinsic feature of climate change mm -hmm. today. And if we want to get over it, we are going to have to tackle that economic system in a, a palatable way, but one that is also really dramatic. Um, you know, I was just thinking about another article I saw that was, I think, in like Bloomberg or something about uh, flights. And it was saying uh Flight air travel is probably as sustainable as it's ever going to be in anybody's lifetime, mm. which is to say not very. Yeah. And uh, the only solution is for everybody to stop flying in planes and uh, tell your friends to stop too. And it pissed me off so much because I was like every person in media, you know, a couple weeks ago was talking about how cool Jeff Bezos is for shooting a rocket into space. Yeah. And there's like Richard Branson did it already. And then also, I guess Elon Musk is going to do it. And it's like, look, I'll think about like not flying to see my family and friends when these billionaires stop like shooting the equivalent of, I don't know how many airplanes <laughs> into the sky uh, solely so that people will write articles about them, you know? And I think, until we move beyond capitalism in particular, we're going to be stuck with basically allowing rich people to joyride wherever they want while the rest of us try to lead more ascetic lives out of our conscience or something. And it's like, you know, if we had a socialist revolution, would we probably have to take less planes? Yeah, I bet we probably would. <laughs> but like, I would feel more comfortable doing that if I didn't have to see Jeff Bezos on the Washington Post <laughs> or something. Yeah, Um that okay so i said earlier that there is no capitalist uh solution to climate change but i guess maybe i'm wrong because that probably is the solution right like rich people can keep living however <laughs> they want and poor people have yeah, to like right. i don't know just suck it up and figure something else out um it's true it is deeply frustrating and i don't know that's it though that's like that's the impasse it is like do you want a world where yeah i guess people like jeff bezos can keep just doing whatever they want while you do have to like figure out how to take a bike to work 
um, which is great. I mean, ride your bike. It's fine. <laughs> but, like, you get know what I'm saying, right? Either uh, it's, a, it's a world where, like, the rules don't apply for the rich and everyone else has to suffer, suffer, or do you want a world where, like, I don't know, everyone can kind of, like, work together and um, try to figure out, like, a, a solution that respects everybody. Um, right. And Well, and it's also, like, that's how capitalism works, right? Like, it, uh, it forces you as an individual to sort of assume that the choices that you make are actually way more important than, in fact, they are. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you specifically listening to this podcast are not contributing to climate change in any real, like, measurable way measured up against the people who actually are, which is to say fossil fuels, uh, the military, you know, uh, massive logistics companies and so on. Those are the people that are causing climate change at the end of the day. And yeah, should we try to live more sustainable lives? Of course, whatever. But I think it's really significant also to be like, there is just nothing that you can do as an individual person to make a dent here. So you also have to like let yourself off the hook and be like, I don't know, as long as, you know, as long as the Pentagon is going to spend millions of dollars to like shoot, (laughs) shoot bombs for no reason (laughs) or like test their new planes and stuff uh, and just fly them around arbitrarily, like as long as the Pentagon's doing that, uh, you choosing to recycle or not is like probably not going to be that big of a deal, unfortunately. I mean, it sucks. It's awful. But that's just the the world that we live in. This is fundamentally why you and I will never be sort of like lifestyle influencers, because that was a perfect opportunity for you to be like, <laughs> should we live more sustainable lives? Yes. And let me tell you about <laughs> let me tell you about this bar of shampoo that you should buy instead of buying another <laughs> yeah, bottle, yeah. you dumb idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah look i mean do buy my shampoo for sure <laughs> do you buy my uh, good marxist shampoo uh, please you know, <laughs> yeah yeah you can do that by subscribing to our patreon <laughs> for sure um we'll we'll make a, a patreon exclusive shampoo sticker that you can feel good about uh saving the world as, as it gets uh, shipped to you in a fossil fuel uh using a uh, mail truck yep all right folks it's bleak but guess what um uh the world isn't ending in itself it's just gonna get really bad until we figure out what to do so let's figure it out let's let's do this thing let's get let's get jeff bezos out of this out of this space shuttle or let's launch him back into space i don't know whichever whichever seems like it's going to be good um i'm here for it but we got to figure something out and uh joe biden doesn't have the answers so let's do something different yeah you know i'll let's give the last word to leonardo boff as we always should uh, the Brazilian liberation theologian. We've talked about this article a long time ago on the podcast too, but he has a great blog post called The Earth Will Defeat Capitalism. Uh, it will not make you feel better, but it is a really fascinating uh, piece and you can find it on his blog. Um, he concludes his blog post uh, after talking about how bad capitalism is with, I think, a... I don't know what to call it. It's not really a benediction because it doesn't really feel like a blessing. But the... Uh, <laughs> The last words of it are, uh, we must pray and be prepared for the worst. And I think that is probably the, I don't know, maybe that's the the Christian sort of translation now of the, the kind of Gramscian pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, you know, uh, pray <laughs> that something happens, but prepare for the worst. Woof. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, and you didn't this time, right? I mean, we all know <laughs> this one was bad. Not the content. I mean, Dean and I were great, but talking about climate change is always rough. Um, it's a bad one. But if you valued this podcast interaction, then you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. 
Um, the our Patreon does run on servers powered by electricity, which is probably powered by fossil fuels in some way. So that's not great. So think about that as you're giving us your money. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam Between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.